You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Praise the Lord. Thank you very much for that great message and song, a beautiful song and, a great, and just a great, powerful truth, a reminder that uh, everything we need, we have in Jesus Christ, and I'm thankful for that. And let me just mention before we get into the preaching, too, we've got a number of guests this morning, and just talking about that truth, and a lot of people come into a place like this, and they're probably searching for an answer, uh, and Especially in a day and age like, like this right now, there are a lot of questions. And uh, you say, well, I want to know what happens when I die. I want to know what the future holds. Uh, well, Jesus is always enough. And the only place you have to look if you want to settle that question in your mind about eternity is you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. And you have to believe there's a consequence for your sin. And then you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and there's no other way. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It is an exclusive gospel, and a lot of people don't like to hear that, um, but, but that's what the Bible says, and we believe and place our trust in what the Bible says. And Jesus Christ, in his own words, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and you can look for answers everywhere else. You will not find the answers to eternity anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. If he, he's enough in that regard as well. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if you've come with a question about that, you don't have to leave still a- asking the question. You can leave with an answer. And his name is Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning to, uh, give, to submit to that today and, and get that question settled in your mind. We're going to be in the book of Haggai chapter 2. And as you turn, go ahead and stand, as is our practice, out of respect of God's word. Haggai chapter 2, and again, I've said this, I think this is my fourth or fifth week in Haggai. Go to Matthew and go left a few pages, and that'll get you to the book of Haggai. It's one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament, and uh, it's uh, kind of an obscure little book, but one that really seems to have answered, in my mind, a lot of parallels for what we were facing in the last few months, especially regarding not being in God's house and then coming back into God's house and to make it a priority again as it needs to be. Haggai chapter 2 is where we'll be, and we'll begin reading in verse 20. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20, it says, And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month. Now, if you'll notice, and I'm, I'm just going to give a little commentary here. If you'll notice, that's the same day in that, back in verse 10. It's the exact same day that he preached his previous message. Okay, so it's the 4 and 20th day of the ninth month. So I'm envisioning that, you know, as a preacher, you, you preach a message. One of two things is going through his mind. Either the first one he thought didn't go very well, so he thought he needed to preach another one to make up for it. Or he thought it went so well that he said, oh, they're ready for more, so he preached another one. I just want to say, as a preacher, you don't need many excuses to preach more messages. So they come back for Sunday night church, we'll call it, verse 20, and they hear this, another message from Haggai. It says, verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. 
And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathens, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And there's some context and, and some details that we'll be looking at this morning, but, but I, I'm calling this today um, Shake, Take, and Make. And I know that sounds like a strange outline, but when, it's, when it all rhymes, you want to make sure people know your outline. Shake, take, and make. Because there's a question here that God is trying to answer in Zerubbabel's mind. There are some questions uh, about how it all ends. And God gives him some confidence, and he uses three words to do it. I will shake the heavens. I will take the oaths of Zerubbabel, and I will make thee as a signet. And hopefully by the end of it, we'll have more confidence in our God's sovereignty about his plans and his ability to make it all better in the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts through it, illuminate it for us. We ask that the Holy Spirit would just help us to see uh, this truth today and give us insight into what difference it makes both in our lives and also uh, for our future. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If I was to summarize the point of the book of Haggai, I would do it this way. God blesses when his people prioritize the things that matter the most to God. I'll say it again. God's people, or God blesses his people when they prioritize what matters to him. See, we've seen that in Haggai's three sermons to this point. Haggai's a book from a prophet named Haggai, from the word of the the Lord coming to Zerubbabel and coming to uh, those in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. And his first message, he preaches four messages in this book, and his first message was for them to get started working on God's house because they had for, for a, long number, a long amount of time, number of years, they had allowed the temple of God, they built the foundation and then they stopped the work because of, of outside uh, influences and pressures. They had stopped the work on this temple. And because they had stopped the work on the temple, then Haggai's second message, once they began the work, his second message was to come in and encourage them to keep going because once they resumed the work, the temple looked small. If they were comparing this second temple to the first temple in Solomon's day, and I'm telling you, it was nothing like Solomon's temple. It was much smaller. It wasn't nearly as impressive and they were discouraged because of it. So Haggai comes, and in his second message, he says, you keep doing the work because someday the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, he, he, will, he will actually walk in this temple. That's what makes this temple matter. It's not about the size. It's about the presence of God. His, his third message then is about the issue of sin. He comes back and he says, yes, you've resumed the work, and, and I'm thankful for that. And yes, you've worked through the discouragement, and now you've basically finished the foundation. But you also then have to remember that there are issues of sin, 
and issues of unholiness that if you don't take care of those, it doesn't matter how big the temple is. If you don't deal with your sin, if you don't deal with you being right with God, then the temple won't matter at all because God can't work through unholy people. God had stopped blessing them because of their sin of complacency toward God's house and he had removed his blessing. And, and when they began or resumed the work, he started blessing them again, but they didn't see it right away. That was last week's message. We talked about how we'll, get, we'll make things right and we'll turn and we'll start doing the right thing. But it takes a while for us to start noticing the blessings that come because of our obedience. It's easy once you, once you start doing right, you still reap this, the, the fruit or the, the, you sow the fruit of the wickedness that you did before. And it lasts through the time that you start sowing good seeds. And a lot of people quit in, in the overlap. They think, well, you know, I've been doing right and I'm still dealing with consequences. Well, that's the nature of sin. When you do wrong for long enough, you deal with consequences for a long time, even when you start doing right again. These are the kind of messages that Haggai gives to them, and it leads to the fourth and final message here to the Jews. Again, as I mentioned, this is the second message on the same day. And this message, though, is not to Jerusalem. This message isn't to all the people. This message is to Zerubbabel himself. It's to an individual. Look at verse 21. It says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Zerubbabel is called the governor of Judah. He was the leader of the people, and he had led them back from captivity. He had, he had been tasked with rebuilding the temple, and, and not just because he was a good builder. It was because of the, he was in this position because he was of royal blood. Zerubbabel, we know, based on genealogies, that Zerubbabel was a direct descendant of King David himself. So he was the rightful leader. He was, uh, his line was of the king's. And through his line, we also know that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come many years later. This man has an important role to play because of who he is. And things seem to be set up for him, but it's not easy. Things seem to be, okay, you're, you're the royal, you're the king, you're, you're set up here, it's, the foundation is done. It should be easy, let's just get started. But you have to remember the, the situation that the Jews lived in. See, the Jews, they were back in their land, and they were there back where their fathers had, had built Jerusalem, and, and they were rebuilding it. And, but, you know, the Jerusalem had been laid flat um, many years before this by their enemies. Babylon had come through and just basically flattened Jerusalem and flattened the temple, and, and they were still under the authority of another, of another realm. They had come back from their exile in Babylon, but they were still serving the Persians. They, they, they didn't have control over their own country. So I just want you to think about this. They're, they're people trying to do the work of God. They're trying to build the house of God, but they're doing it in a place that nobody cares about God. I mean, Jerusalem is God's country, but they're probably looking around and they're seeing Persian flags flying from their city. They're, they're likely, I'm just imagining, they're likely watching Persian soldiers in chariots and, and, and just continually reminding them that they're not autonomous, that they're not in control. Uh, they, they had the opportunity, sure, to carry on God's work, but they were doing it almost as strangers in their own land. They're subject to a heathen power. Not only that, but their godless neighbors that lived in the area, not just the Persians, their neighbors opposed them at every turn. So does this, I wonder if this sounds familiar. Because we're, doing, we're trying to do God's work, 
We're trying to advance the kingdom of God here at Eastside Baptist Church, but we're not in friendly territory either. Our culture is increasingly hostile to the things of God. Anything godly, they look down on. They, they begrudge and they resent. I mean, everywhere we look, we're reminded we're almost pilgrims in a strange land. The glorification of sin. I'm thinking about even just this month um, being the month that it is, you know, with, with the Pride Month and, and those kinds of things. And listen, I, I, I love sinners. I love people. I really do. But there are certain sin that's being exalted and lifted up in our day and age that, that God does not condone in his book. And yet we live in a culture that's lifting up things that God is directly opposed to. Just turn on the news and, and you'll see people losing their minds in this all-out pursuit of, of selfishness and violence and hatred and sin. That's where we live. We're pilgrims in a strange land. And it can get discouraging. And we're asking, when is it going to end, Lord? I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, how, what's what's going to happen with, with everything going on even today? I mean, you've got coronavirus and you've got the riots and you've got civil unrest and you've got this racial tension. I mean, when, when will it all be rectified? Will, will good or will evil win out? Zerubbabel had to be asking those kinds of questions too. He's of royal blood. He's acting king. He's the leader. He's the builder. Things should be set up for him to succeed. But he's working on God's house under a regime around people that could not care less about God. And that's when Haggai's message comes as a form of what I believe encouragement. Encouragement to let Zerubbabel know that things may not look great right now, but God will make it good in the end. So on Wednesday night, I preached a message. I called it Begin with the End in Mind, and it was about parenting. And I encourage parents, if, if you're raising children and you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to it. Uh, for parents, though, sometimes the best decision maker for us is not to think about what's convenient in the moment and not to think about what the child prefers in the moment and not to, not to think about what everybody else is doing and what's happening in the moment but to think about the kind of adult we want our children to become. And when you start thinking about the kind of adult that you want your child to be when they're 18 or 19 or 20 and they're stepping away from the porch, getting in their vehicle and going on to the next thing, when you think about that, uh, that helps us make a lot of decisions in our lives. If I want an adult that loves God and puts him first, then I will treat today differently than I would have otherwise. And it's hard to know every step as we raise them, but if I imagine my children being godly adults who love and serve God with all of their hearts above everything else, that will help me to decide what they wear and who, where they go and who their friends are and what kind of activities I let them be involved in. When I'm thinking about the kind of adult that I want them to be, it changes the way that I deal with today. It helps me set my expectation level for these right here on this row here. Beginning with the end in mind is a huge help in parenting. I also think beginning with the end in mind is a huge help in living the Christian life. There's a lot of moments where we think, what is happening? This is not the way it's supposed to look. 
This is not, it's not supposed to be this hard. It's not supposed to look this desperate. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. And, and you look around and you think, what's going to happen? What does the end look like? No, listen, when we realize and remember that God is at work and God is a sovereign God who has a plan and he has the resources to see his plan carried out, when things aren't easy and we're discouraged, those are the kind of thoughts that help us find hope that it ends well. And that's God's message here. He's saying, I, I know it's hard, but I promise it ends, ends well. Zerubbabel, he needed to be reminded of that God has a plan and he's able to carry it out. And here's what Zerubbabel needed to hear. And here's kind of the thought that kind of guides us as we go here. No matter what happens in the middle, God controls the ending. No matter what happens in the middle, God controls the ending. God uses then three simple I will phrases that I think highlight the level of control God has. And he says, I will shake, I will take, and I will make. I'm going to look at those three statements today pointing to the fact that God has a plan and he's still in control. Look at verse 21 again. It says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And then he says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother. He starts though by saying, I will shake. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. It's the second time he's used this phrase. He did back up in seven, verse seven and six and seven as well. I will shake. And it means exactly what you think it means. It means to tremble or to quake. And if you've ever been in an earthquake, and I haven't been in many, but uh, my wife is from the Bay Area, and she tells her the story. And in 1989, when she was just a girl, and right before the, uh, the World Series between the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants, and the first game's about to start, and they had a massive earthquake there in the San Francisco Bay Area. And she talks about how it seemed to just last forever. I've been in a few tremors. I've felt a few earthquakes but not to the point where it lasted so long that you're trying to stand and you can't. She said that's what it was like. There was, everything was unstable. It reminds me a little bit, you know, this is probably what more of us could equate to. Um, have you ever, you ever played on the playground and remember those wooden playground suspension bridges in the playgrounds? You know, the things that you would run across and they'd make a lot of noise as you go across. And they were always fun to be on until the school bully stood on one end of it and shook it and you couldn't stand up anymore. And you feel I'm screaming for, for your life because you think if I fall off this thing, I'm going to fall all four feet to the ground and I won't make it. You know, you're trying to cross it and somebody's shaking it. That when, when things start to shake, you can't stand anymore. And that's the idea that's coming across. That's the point God is making is the future of the wicked is unstable. I will shake them. They look unstoppable, but God is saying, eventually, I'm going to shake things up, Zerubbabel. Uh, he's reminding Zerubbabel that the world powers who seem unstoppable, uh, that he is in charge of them too. See, he will reward those that do evil, and he'll judge them. He will reward them with judgment. And he gives five examples here. He says, I will overthrow the throne of the, of the kingdoms. And he talks about the throne. Listen, there are a lot of people that think they rule in this country. And I think about people they call the king of pop, Michael Jackson. 
They call LeBron James, he's the king of, in basketball. And they've got all these, everybody's a king. Listen, there's only one king, and he sits on a throne that has never been unoccupied. His name is God. And there's all kinds of thrones all around the world. And everybody thinks, well, I'm in charge of this country, and I'm over this region. No, there's only one that rules over all. He has the highest throne. His name is God. And he says, I will overthrow the throne of all the kingdoms. He also says, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. Listen, all, I mean, we look around, and there's a lot of evil, and there are a lot of evil regimes, and there are a lot of evil kings and evil people, and they seem to have a lot of power. You know that with one snap of his finger, God could destroy the strength of every regime in heathen country out there. God has all of that power. They think they have power, but God has all power. And compared to him, they have nothing. I will overthrow the chariots, those that ride in them, he says, the horses and the riders. He says, I will overthrow them. They, they have resources. It looks like they've got resources, and, and they've, they've got the upper hand in resources. He says, I've got more resources than them. He even says, I will overthrow every one of them by the sword of his brother. And he's saying, basically, I, I can make them destroy themselves. And we think, well, there's a certain way that it has to happen. God can do it any way that he wants to. He can even make them destroy themselves, which he's saying that's going to happen. Here's the message, though. God is great. He said, and God will shake up the wicked when it's time. Zerubbabel, don't worry. In the end, God will shake up the wicked. And I just want you to stop and think about all, all that God is planning and all that God can do right here. And we don't serve a passive, indecisive God. We don't. He already has a plan. And even though it looks overwhelming in the moment, never forget whose side we're on. The God of heaven fights for us. The creator of the universe is on our side. The one with all power has made it available to us. And that's what Haggai is telling Zerubbabel. Yes, the task is big, and I know very few people want you to succeed. I understand the enemy looks strong, but God has a plan, and he has the resources to see it to come to pass. God is saying, I know the future, and no matter what's happening today, I have control of tomorrow. Listen, I just want to remind you this morning that sin has a shelf life. It will not continue forever. It seems unstoppable and it seems like it goes on and on and there's nothing that could put an end to it. But someday, God, a holy, righteous God will rectify all of it. He'll shake it up. Psalm 37, 38 says, But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. And here's the principle that I think we should learn and be encouraged from, from this I will shake, is that God has a plan for sin. God has a plan for sin. Is it concerning? Well, yes. Is it scary, what the world we live in? You bet. Do we have answers for every problem? Well, I mean, I think the answer is Jesus Christ, but they're not listening to that one, so sometimes we feel like we don't have answers. But listen, Christian, we know the ending. And the middle looks rough, but we know the ending. God has a plan for sin, and he will someday, he'll shake it. So then he shifts tones here, and instead of talking to the, about the wicked, he, he starts giving a couple promises to Zerubbabel in verse 23. 
In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And so I want to focus there on the first part. It says, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord. He says, so the first point is to the wicked. He said, I will shake. There is an end to sin. But the second point is, I will take thee, Zerubbabel. And what he's saying is, in our minds, when I think of the word take, I think there's something laying there, or something sitting there, and I reach down and I take it. I, I just pick it up. And that's the way when we think of the word take, we often mean to grab something. But this word is much more deliberate than that. Its first use in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2. And it says, so think, so here, pay attention here. The Lord God took the man and put, it, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. That's the first use of the word take in the Bible. And so when you think about God taking man and putting him into the Garden of Eden, you think God was just like, all right, take him, put him in the Garden of Eden. No, it says God, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. It sounds like there's a lot of care in the word take, to take care. That's really the idea of the word. Almost like if you're at a wedding and we've got one coming up this week, which is why Brother Tim, is, he's sweating a lot in the service this morning. But, you know, we've got at a wedding very often you'll say, do you take this man to be your husband? Do you take this woman to be your wife? And when you say take in that regard, you don't think, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll take that. No. Do you take? Do you take this person, not just to be your, your husband or be your wife, just to kind of have a partner? No, do you take this person to love and cherish and hold and, and take care of, to comfort, to hold on to, to lay fast hold of? That's the word that God says to Zerubbabel when he says, I will take. He's not saying, yeah, I'll take you, Zerubbabel, I guess. You know, you're the last one on the, on the playground. Everybody else has been picked for this game of dodgeball. I'll take him. No, this is like he's the first person picked in the game. I will take you and I will lay hold of you and I will keep you safe. We get a glimpse into the kind of concern God has for his people and the principle from the phrase, I will take, is this. God has a plan to keep a servant safe. So God has a plan for sin. But I will take is that God has a plan to keep his servants safe. Listen, in an evil world with all kinds of craziness, God has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten you. Ask, I mean, he's always protected his own. Ask Noah if God protects his people. Go and read stories about the children of Israel during the Egyptian plagues and tell me whether or not God protects his people. He does. We're not subject to the same judgment as the wicked. Let me say that again. We're not subject to the same judgment as the wicked. And right now, we live in an age where everyone's kind of looking around at all the signs going on and they're assuming, well, this is pointing to the end and this is what's happening in the end and this is going to be the sign that this is coming. And listen, I believe that we're closer to Jesus Christ coming than we've ever been, obviously. But what's happening around us, as crazy as it is, uh, we're not necessarily told to look for a bunch of signs. We're looking for a person named Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
1 Thessalonians 1 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Listen, uh, don't get so wrapped up in what's going on around us. And I know there's a lot going on around us, and I know, well, this is the sign of this, and this is happening because of this. No, we're to look for Jesus Christ. That's our command. There's always been an urgency when it comes to Jesus Christ's return. We're looking for him. And you say, well, what does that have to do with God taking care of his own? Well, the point of this is God takes care of his people. He does not subject them to the same judgment and wrath that he does to the wicked. The world crashes down around us. God's always protected his servants. And if you're his child, coronavirus it seems scary, I know, but your soul is safe with God. And the economy may crash around you, and you may lose your 401k and all of your investments, but nothing can take away your future in heaven. God looks after his own. That should give us confidence that no matter what today looks like, God has tomorrow. Psalm 37, I already read that the end of the wicked shall be cut off, but the verse right before it says, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. And what he tells us is that the end of the righteous, the end of the, the, the upright, the end of God's child is peace, but the end of the wicked will be destroyed and cut off. Our ending is different if we're a child of God. And I'm thankful for the promise that he gives Zerubbabel, I will shake the wicked, but Zerubbabel, you're mine, and I will take care of you. God has a plan for sin. God has a plan for his servants. And then third, I will make, he says. Look at this. It says at the end of verse 23, he will take Zerubbabel, and then I will make thee as a signet. For I've chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I love this point. Make means to place. It means to appoint. Again, notice God's care. In the midst of shaking of the wicked, God takes Zerubbabel and he makes him something very specific. God's plan for Zerubbabel is that he will be a signet. And maybe you don't know what a signet is. I had to do some research on it on my own. A signet is a sign of authority. Ancient kings would use signet rings to designate their authority or their honor or their ownership of something. And a signet on a signet ring contained an emblem that was unique to that king. And so official documents would be signed and sealed with wax. And then that king would take the signet, his, his sign of authority, and he would punch it into the wax. He would press on it and that would seal the document, letting somebody know that this is an official letter from the king because it has his signet. Zerubbabel, so basically then, Zerubbabel was a sign of God's authority and honor. And that was important because years before this, Zerubbabel had a grandfather whose name was Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was basically the last king there in Judah uh, before God cut it all off. And because he was so evil, because Jeconiah was so wicked, God had basically removed the signet from, from the family and said, I can't even have you representing me as an authority anymore because of your wickedness. Now, he did not say, I will no longer have the line of David be the king because that's a, a permanent line. And the line of David would end up in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So we know that wasn't what, what God was saying to Jeconiah, but he was saying for a time, there won't be anybody representing me. So for those years of exile, when the Jews were taken to Babylon and there were slaves in Babylon for that number 70 years or so, 
And, and then when they came back, people were probably thinking, but God removed the signet. So who's going to stand up? Well, God comes to Zerubbabel and says, you're the guy. I've chosen you. Because of your line, you happen to be in the line of David, you're of royal blood. And so he comes back and says, my authority has been, re, has been restored to you, Zerubbabel. That's what he's saying when he says, you're my signet. So God tells Zerubbabel, his authority is restored. He's the chosen one. And listen, I love this. God was going to make or appoint. He was, I will make. He was going to make Zerubbabel, appoint Zerubbabel for this position and here it is. I love how God enables his people for the task that he calls them to. See, God didn't say, okay, I just need somebody, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you. You know, the guy that's not paying attention, me? Yeah, I want you to come be the king and I want you to lead the people. No, he chose him and he put on him. He put on him as a signet, his authority, the sign of God's authority. And listen, God has never been about doing business with or without mankind. Have you noticed that? If you read the Bible, God doesn't, look, God doesn't just say, okay, you know what, uh, we want some, I want something to be done, I'll just do it on my own. No, he picks out people, he chooses mankind to accomplish his purposes. And I'm thankful in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So listen, Zerubbabel is probably the guy saying, boy, I don't think we can get this temple done. It looks so small. I don't have much building experience. Everyone's, look, what do I do? And God says, no, Zerubbabel, I called you to this task. I will make you the signet. I give you my authority to accomplish my work. God always enables the people that he calls to do a task. And very often what I'm thankful for is he calls the foolish of the world. He calls you and me. He calls the weak ones of the world. He calls you and me to do his work. I don't know why we'd be asked to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ, but you know what Jesus said before he sent out his disciples? He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore with my power. You know what he was doing? He was giving us his signet. He was saying, I will give you the authority to accomplish my work in a, in a time when people need to hear about me. And that's what he was telling Zerubbabel. He always enables the people that he calls. And here's the principle. God has a plan to enable men to accomplish his task. If God calls us to a task, he will give us everything we need to accomplish it. Whom God calls, he enables. Notice it's God making Zerubbabel as a signet. God didn't say, okay, Zerubbabel, um, here's your tuition money. I want you to go to college for four years, get a degree in accounting or in business or in construction management, and I want you to lead these people. No, God does the enabling. God made him the man he needed to be, and as long as a man or woman is a servant, God will equip us for the task. When we try to serve God in our strength, all we get, listen, I, and I, I love this line of thinking, but listen, when we try to serve God in our strength, all we get is what our strength offers. But when we serve God in his strength, we got all his strength has to offer. You tell me how much would be accomplished in your strength compared to God's. If he puts you in the position to do a task, he'll enable you to do it. I will shake, I will take, and I will make. So what difference does this make? 
Very often when you're preaching, especially, and I'll just bear my heart a little bit, when you're preaching an expository message, and you're just going through the text and you're trying to do justice to the text and preach what's there, sometimes it's hard to say, okay, but how do I get this to apply to somebody sitting in the pew today? It's usually the toughest part in preaching. But we have to believe it makes a difference in our lives, this text. So I want to go back to the parallels. We live in a culture that is opposed to God and his work. Amen? We live in a world that seems to be out of control. We're severely outnumbered and seemingly outmanned. And that's why we need reminders like this. That no matter the opposition, folks, no matter the chaos... No matter how outmanned we are, no matter how many disadvantages we are in, we know how it ends. God will shake the wicked. He has a plan for sin. God will take the righteous. He has a plan to protect his servants. And God will make his people. He has a plan to enable his servants for the task. And listen, so if if he so thoroughly has a plan for a good ending, then why are we so worried about the middle? If he has such a solid plan that he tells Zerubbabel and that same plan would apply to us because God always has a plan for sin and he always has a plan to protect his people and he always has a plan to enable us in the task. If that plan is still in place, then why are we wringing our hands about what's happening right now? See, we so often operate out of fear that we take ourselves out of a position of usefulness for God. We're so afraid of what happens and we're so afraid of what's going on and we're so worried about the future that we're no longer useful in God's work. These truths should make the difference in helping us stop to worry about circumstances and simply get to work. Build now was the message to Zerubbabel. Don't wait. I've made you a signet. I'll enable you. I'll take care of you. Let me take care of the wicked Right now, Zerubbabel, you just need to stop all the worry and you need to lead the people into getting back to work. The work of God's house and the labor of God's house needs people. Folks, your neighbors need truth today. The people that you work with, they need somebody to show them Jesus Christ in their lives. Your children need to be taught right now. There are lost souls who need to be won at this moment. That's the difference this truth makes. I don't know if it's coming across or not today. Help me if it is. The fact that God is in control and we can have confidence in his plan frees us from worry to simply get to work. We don't have to wonder if the wicked will be judged. They will. God will shake the wicked. We don't have to worry about whether or not God will provide for us. He promises to. God will take care of you. We don't have to wonder or doubt if God's going to equip us for the task or not. We have his word and God will make his people ready for the work. So my question is, the last few months, especially if God has a plan, why are we wringing our hands? Do you trust God to bring about a good ending? Do you think God has the resources to make it happen? Do you trust him to lead and provide and enable his people? Then why are we worrying about tomorrow? Because no matter what's happening today, God already has a plan for tomorrow. 
Don't get so focused on the middle that you forget the ending. God will uphold his end of the deal. You can count on it. So what do we do? Let me remind you of, of, of what the whole point of Haggai has been. Make God's priorities your priorities. Say, I don't know what to do. I mean, everything's, so, everything's falling apart around me, and I just don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. No, what you do is just like what Zerubbabel was supposed to do. You make what matters most to God, you make that matter the most in your life. And if you do it, he'll bless you. So while the world seems to collapse around us, invest in God's kingdom and start with God's house, this local church or your local church. So I want to ask you then, who are you actively pursuing to help grow as a Christian right now? What lost person in your life are you actively seeking to be one to Christ? How much time do you encouraging somebody or do you spend encouraging somebody else? Don't be discouraged that no one reaches out to you. Reach out to somebody else. How invested are you in God's house? Do you make it a priority every week? Do you buy in with your service? Are you giving as you should? Do you invite others? Do you seek to be a witness? So stop worrying about all the other circumstances. I can promise you there is plenty to do in the meantime. Do what you know to do and let God take care of the rest. In the end, we don't know about tomorrow, but we know who controls it. And our confidence to continue to be faithful and active in investing, it's not established on what's going to happen. It's established on the confidence we have in our Father. No matter what happens in the middle, God controls the ending. That's how we carry on. We know not only how it ends, we also know who's in charge. So stop worrying and invest in what matters the most to God. So what's interesting about this verse, and we'll wrap this up. We can tell by the movement it's about time. What's interesting about this verse is it's really a picture of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ. So don't miss this, okay? Zerubbabel did not get to see God take care of all of Israel's enemies. Think about that. When God said, I will shake and I'm going to take them down this way and I'll just judge them this way. Do you realize Zerubbabel, historically, if we understand what happened in history, he did, did not get to see all of this happen. He never got to rule over Israel without Persia's oversight. And in many ways, this is a prophetic look ahead to Christ judging the world and being the ultimate signet. The final symbol of God's authority. See, here's the difference it makes to you, and I want you to get across, so I'm going to come down here. Okay? Jesus Christ is the ultimate signet. In the end, he's the ultimate and final authority. Zerubbabel had these promises, but he never got to see them take place in his lifetime. And folks, let me just tell you this. We have a lot of promises. God will shake the wicked. He will take care of his own, and he will make you enabled to do whatever task he gives you. But some of those things, listen, you may not get to see the ending in your lifetime. You may not get to see God judge the wicked like you think they should be judged. You may not get to see justice take place in the lives of the people that are doing wrong all around our country right now. You may not get to see it in your lifetime. You may not get to fully get to experience what it is to have God finally get rid of the wicked and set down uh, and, and have control over the earth in your lifetime, I'm saying. 
And I may never see the wicked judged in my life. And I may never see God make me everything I, I really wish I was. I may not ever get to see it in my lifetime. But listen, all the things that God promises, if I don't see in my, in my lifetime, I will get to see them in eternity. I believe God will judge the wicked. He will shake. It just may not look like what I want it to in my life. I believe he will take care of his servants in the end. But you know, even sometimes, he doesn't always take care of us the way we think he should. And he may allow something bad to happen to somebody we love or somebody or us. And it may not look like we expected. And, and he, may, he may call us to something and, or he may not call us to something and he may not do everything like we want, it to do, what we want him to do. We may not get to see it, but we trust that in the end, in the end, we will get to. So my closing thought today is, if it doesn't look like you want it to, it still is all made good in the end. So don't focus on the middle. Don't focus on what you get to see. Focus on the fact that we have God's promises and he's going to make all of it good. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what goes on around us and we let our circumstances affect how we serve. But the message to Zerubbabel is this. You may not get to see it, but you just keep serving. You just keep doing what you're supposed to do. You keep building on God's house and you keep leading the people and you may not get to see all of it, but in the end, rest in the thought that Jesus Christ wins. God will shake the wicked and take care of his people and make his people enabled. But in the meantime, what do you do? Well, you prioritize what matters to God. And you just keep investing in his people. And you keep investing in God's house. And you keep advancing God's kingdom. Do what you can in the middle. Because he already has a plan for the ending. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.